I'm going to be reading out of Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 17 on page 30 and 31 in your blue Bibles. So you guys can take a second to flip to that. Exodus 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put his hand back inside his cloak. I'm sorry, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for, your, for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thanks, Matt. That's loud. I'm Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. I serve as the lead pastor here at Midtown. Uh, man, I, I told the first service this. Uh, I'm so proud of us. We are adulting so hard as a church. Uh, if you're not familiar, not familiar with that, you're probably uh, either too old or too young. But... Um, basically, we live in this moment where, like, everybody's deconstructing institutions and everybody's kind of burning things to the ground. And um, you recognize after a while that um, you can deconstruct, but the question is not, what are you tearing down, but what are you building? And uh, we have been a church that's always said um, that the church is a people, not a place. And so, primarily, we know that we're a people called by God. And the first, uh, we were planted, started seven years ago. We had six locations in like three years around the city, so we know what it's like to be kind of a transient group. And, uh, but we know that place also matters. And so as uh, all of us, you know, when you're young and in your 20s, you're like, who cares about buildings and who cares about institutions? Uh, that's kind of like a renter's mentality. Uh, when you start to live in a neighborhood, though, you start to care about 
uh, multi-generational things. You start having kids, you start uh, adulting, so to speak, and paying the bills, and you begin to realize, wow, like these conversations that we have are not just about buildings and budgets and finances, but they're about a vision for flourishing in the neighborhood. And as you can see, uh, I've been here seven years. Uh, all the people that started churches around the same time we did are all now gone, right? So it's a very transient place, and it's hard to sustain yourself as a church. And so as we think about uh, not just growth, but also health and sustainability in the future, these are really important conversations. Our building is used pretty much every day of the week. We have uh, recovery groups that meet here. We have different churches that have different groups of people that will meet here. We do trainings and workshops and equipping here. Um, and, and weddings uh, all the time. And so uh, this is a vision that we have for this to be uh, kind of a missional outpost in the city to continue to love uh, our neighbors for generations to come. So I'm thankful for Brandon and for uh, Matt and Allison, the team, and uh, Joe and all the work that they're doing. So um, we are uh, in Exodus in our teaching here. Matt just read this passage and uh, I've been doing that and really for the next year and a half are going to be walking through off and on the book of Exodus. And so uh, Exodus is a book pretty much about the liberation of God's people. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting and fascinating look at uh, the heart of God. And, and, and there's multiple levels that are, this, is, this kind of liberation has taken place. So it's the liberation of God's people from oppression is the primary message of the book of Exodus. And it's happening uh, kind of on the, the physical and social level. So God is, is literally, like this isn't a parable, this isn't like some kind of a fairy tale or something that happened in a galaxy far, far away. There was a real group of people that really lived in the ancient Near East, the Hebrew people, and God uh, raises up this minority community and delivers them from the oppression of uh, the Pharaoh and his empire of kind of restless productivity and anxiety and violence and all the things that were characteristic of that time. And, and so that's kind of, uh, God is literally saving them and rescuing them out of that and, and essentially creating a new society, a new just society where people are to love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. And so it's a chronicle of that journey. Um, but there's also a spiritual dimension that's a little bit uh, lower than that, a little bit deeper than that, that's easy to miss. Um, and, and so one of the things we see in the book of Exodus is that oppression is not just something that happens out there. It's not just something that governments do. Um, it's not just something that's systemic and structural, although it's not less than that. But actually, uh, injustice and oppression is something that happens on the inside, and it's something that we actually uh, participate in, all of us. Um, and so we see, especially in the story of Moses, how um, injustice can actually live in us. And one of the things that God's doing in the book of Exodus is opening up their, the people's eyes to their own idolatry and their own justice and the ways that they try to build uh, a sense of self and a society apart from God and, and really how dark that goes. And so there's this liberation that, that Moses is kind of the paradigm representative of, of this need that we have also to be liberated inside. And so we said uh, a couple weeks ago that uh, the journey that God has us on in transformation is not just for the city, it's also for us. And that um, God wants to do a work in us as much as he wants, wants to do a work through us. And so if we don't experience the healing that we are seeking to bring to our city in our own souls, and our own hearts, then we will end up, as Moses has done here in the first couple chapters of, of Exodus, multiplying injustice rather than healing it. If we don't experience healing in our own hearts, we end up multiplying pain and injustice and suffering and oppression because it's not just something out there, 
It's something that is inside of us. There is a sickness. There is a, uh, uh, a disease that runs through our veins that is part of being human that goes back to our first parents that we must deal with if we're going to be agents of reconciliation and transformation in our city. So we see here in chapters 2 and 3 and then now in 4, um, really the call of God in Moses' life. What does it look like to respond to the, the, the calling of God in our lives? And, and here's kind of the big idea for this uh, message today. The journey of calling uh, leads us from competency to communion with God. The journey of calling is a movement from kind of a competency-based spirituality to a communion-based uh, spirituality where uh, we, uh, we see ourselves less as competent and more as dependent and trusting on God for everything. Now, uh, before we jump in, um, I want to make sure, again, every story in the book of Exodus, there's so much for us to learn, um, and, and, and this really is our story. And uh, when we talk about calling, uh, some people talk about it in terms of purpose or, or work or vocation. Um, and man, there is so much, I think about this room right here and looking out at some of the demographics here, there's so much anxiety around the idea of work and calling, right? And so we're all kind of wrestling through this. So don't think of this like, well, I'm not going to be uh, maybe uh, an activist who delivers America from some of the uh, structural uh, problems that they're experiencing, or I'm not going to be some like pastor. I want you to think less of that, like that's, that's a very narrow view of calling, but I want you to, to widen your horizons for calling and think about it just in terms of your everyday, like your work, right? Like all of us have jobs, or we want to have jobs, or we had a job at some point, um, and, and we work. And so there's a, there's a phrase that's been coined to describe some of the cultural moment in terms of how we experience our work. Uh, it was in a recent article from The Atlantic called Workism. And the basic idea of workism is, uh, I'll, just, I'll give you a quote here and then we'll talk some more about it. The Atlantic uh, had this to say, the writer, who I don't believe is a Christian, but he's kind of dialing into some of the realities around our conflicted relationship, unhealthy relationship, weird relationship with our work. Uh, he, he says, the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, and others worship their children. But everybody worships something. Now, he's not talking about worship as religion here. He's just talking about our affections and our desires and our longings. Workism is among the most potent of the new religions. So here's a person, not a Christian, I don't think, talking about uh, work as a religion. Competing for congregants. What is workism? It's the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose, and the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. But our desks were never meant to be altars. The modern labor force evolved to serve the needs of consumers and capitalists, not to satisfy tens of millions of people seeking transcendence at the office. It's hard to self-actualize on the job if you're a cashier, one of the most common occupations in the U.S., and even the best white-collar roles have long periods of stasis, boredom, or busy work. This mismatch between expectations and reality is a recipe for, and I think this is putting it lightly, severe disappointment, if not outright misery, and it might explain why rates of depression and anxiety in the U.S. are substantially higher than they were in the 1980s, according to a 2014 
study. So he's saying there's all this pressure as we've moved full into kind of uh, the secular story, right, which started a couple hundred years ago from an academic standpoint. Which basically, the goal was autonomy and liberation, right? Like, I, we, we want to be freed from kind of the structures of, like, religion and uh, authority, and we want to be kind of our own authorities. We want to pursue our own freedoms. And so um, he's, what, what, he, what he's kind of arguing here is as that's kind of matured, um, now, with the loss of meaning, the loss of transcendence, the loss of authority structures, we tend to take things like work or even politics or whatever, and we elevate them. We give them kind of a godlike uh, quality and characteristic. And so um, it demands kind of our allegiance and our, our worship. And so you'll hear people saying, like, follow your passion, right? Like, work is supposed to be a place of passion. Discover your passion follow your passion, right? Which sounds awesome, right? But like, again, this is a generational shift. This is something new. Like, I grew up in a um, working class neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky in the South. And in my neighborhood growing up, most of the, uh, the men worked at Ford uh, Motor Company. And they were assembly guys. They were just, they were blue collar guys. And again, the goal in life was, there was not a whole lot of, I'm passionate about, you know, I'm not passionate about like the assembly line. I'm passionate about paying the bills for my family. And that's, if you hear a lot of men over the age of, you know, 50, that's kind of how they talk about work is work is a necessity. Work is toil. Work is not about passion. But now we have basically a whole generation of people being conditioned to think and really kind of raised, this is partly on the parents, raised to think of work as the fulfillment of all of their longings and angst and maybe some, in some ways the fulfillment of uh, the unfulfilled desires of their parents, right? And so if I could kind of live through uh, my kids vicariously and set them up for uh, something that they're passionate about, uh, that'll be awesome. And, and, it, and it, this experiment's kind of worked for a certain slice of wealthy people who kind of won the lottery here. But for the most part, um, it, it's, it's actually creating and exacerbating anxiety, not making it better, right? We have uh, off-the-charts levels of mental health issues and anxiety and depression and burnout. Um, so this is not like an isolated thing. This is a big kind of social issue now. There was another article in the New York Times uh, that spoke to some of this as well. Uh, called Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? I just love that. Why, why are we all faking it, right? We all, oh, I love work, and we, we kind of project this image on social media that's like curated, and we're all like successful, and we're all doing well, and we, we love it. Um, but the base of the whole article kind of tears down what they call the rise and grind, like uh, hustle culture uh, of younger people, where it's like, uh, you know, it's kind of characterized by WeWork, which is a, a co-working space, um, they're all over the country, but it's like, you know, not only is it a workspace, now it's like we've got WeWork schools and we've got WeWork fitness centers, and the idea is kind of this self-actualization through uh, work, but the thing is, they're kind of saying it's like it's a charade, like nobody actually loves what they're doing, everybody feels stressed out. Um, they, they actually summarize in this article uh, another article that went viral from BuzzFeed um, called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And, and it's interesting because a lot of our uh, elders will say, like, millennials are entitled and they're lazy and they're just, it's like the me generation. But, the, but she actually argues, this, this author actually argues that it's the opposite, that what we see with millennials is not laziness and entitlement, but actually overworking, right? Putting too much of our identity, trying to find too much meaning in our work, which leads to these crazy expectations, right? Like, work's got to be this, and yet our experience of like our offices or like our remote, you know, bedroom while we're working in our underwear, you know, like that, that gap is leading to so much 
anxiety. So here's what um, this one article from BuzzFeed says. Millennials, Ms. Peterson argues, are just desperately striving to meet their own high expectations. An entire generation was raised to expect that good grades and extracurricular overachievement would reward them with fulfilling jobs that feed their passions. Instead, they wound up with precarious, meaningless work and a mountain of student loan debt. And so posing as a rise and grinder, lusty for Monday mornings, starts to make sense as a defense mechanism. <laughs> That's awesome. That, is just, like, that article is truly amazing. So what, what she's saying is it hasn't gotten us to the place that we thought it would, right? There's massive disillusionment, massive uh, anxiety. And, and like, even like trying to answer the question, like, what are you passionate about? There's a Stanford study out a couple years ago where they asked like students in the School of Design, um, what are you passionate about? And you realize like less than 20% had an answer to the question. Most everybody's like, I, I don't know. Like some days I'm passionate about this, some days I'm passionate about this, and I don't really know. And so, um, so this is all kind of what's wrapped up in thinking about work and, and our calling. And so I just want to speak to this as like this is a reality for us. And as we think about our calling, as we think about our work, which is a part of our calling, by the way, but it's not the totality of our calling. Um, we have to recognize and talk through, where, where does this come from? Some of this comes from inside of us. Some of this comes from, like, structural things that are happening in America right now. Um, but we have to recover a sense for, what does it mean to be called by God? What is it, do, do we even believe that God speaks? Do we even believe that God calls? Are we, are we just doing work for work's sake? I would argue, if you're only working for work's sake, work will end up crushing you. If you don't love something more than work, work becomes a taskmaster, a kind of pharaoh in our lives. We have to have a higher love than just our work, and we have to see calling in the larger sense of what God's doing in the world. So that's what I want to talk about today is Moses' call and what we can learn from that ourselves. And so if you remember where we left this a couple of weeks ago, uh, Moses was in this uh, kind of season of alienation, right? And, and really, that's what happens. Uh, I guess this is a good way to describe our life apart from God is a life of alienation. Remember, Moses grew up with a very traumatic childhood. He had what was kind of a mixture of both privilege and pain. He grew up as a prince of Egypt, but he was adopted uh, as a young boy. He was returned back to his birth family. His mother uh, weaned him, and then he went back to the Pharaoh's house, and he was raised in the palaces of Egypt. He was highly educated. He was a cultural elite in every sense of the word, part of the ruling class of uh, Egypt. And yet, there was this deep kind of existential pain that Moses was experiencing uh, because he felt like he didn't really belong, right? He didn't belong uh, in Egypt. His heart was really with the Hebrews. And yet, um, his response to the injustice that he was seeing around him was essentially to step out and to murder an Egyptian blue-collar line manager. And so Moses, we saw last, running off into the wilderness for 40 years, confused, um, somewhat alone, lacking uh, any sense of trust in God uh, or others. And then he has this encounter in chapter 3 with God. Remember the burning bush? Josh talked about this last week. The burning bush, God shows up and kind of unsettles and disrupts Moses' security uh, and his comfort. It says that Moses turned aside. That's an interesting phrase. And, and uh, the great spiritual writers of kind of uh, centuries ago would say this, this idea of turning aside is the idea of waking up. It's, it's waking up and paying attention for the first time to what God's doing around him. Uh, it's interesting to think about 
um, and this is just speculation, how many burning bushes Moses had walked past uh, in 40 years. Maybe not literally uh, burning bushes, but opportunities where God was beginning to speak and was saying, hey, Moses, pay attention. I'm about to do something uh, in your life. And so one of the great dangers I think all, spir- all spiritual traditions kind of recognize is the danger of living life asleep. You know what I mean? Living asleep, it's like if you're a young parent, it's like you're just kind of like doing, going through the motions, trying to survive. Uh, you're not really paying attention to things. I don't know if you ever had an experience where you get in your car and you like drive across the city and you're like, how did I get here? How did I get to work today? That kind of autopilot is like what it means to be asleep. And many of us, we can kind of laugh about that, but that's how we actually live the majority of our lives, asleep, not paying attention to the larger realities of what God's doing around us. Not even sure, like doubting, does God even exist? And if he exists, is he relevant, right? Like I don't think the majority of people in Indianapolis are mad at God. I just think they think God is largely absent from their experience in everyday lives. I have like a raging atheist community here. It's just like, you know, I go to church, but I'm not really sure God's there. I'm not really sure he speaks, and I'm not really sure there's any sort of purpose to all this stuff. It's just a grind. And so God steps into the grind of Moses' life, and he begins to call him into the furnace of personal transformation. And so there's this double call here in chapters 3 and 4 on Moses' life. Last week we saw the call to salvation and the fact that God calls Moses into a personal relationship with himself. Right? That's, that's the birthplace of calling is God saves us, he rescues us, he liberates us from the injustices inside of us, from kind of the inner tor- turmoil, uh, both the sin and the suffering that's inside of us. And then he begins to call him out into the world on mission. So you could say kind of last week was the call to salvation. This week we're looking at the call to vocation, right? The call to service and to mission. God always calls us in before he calls us out. Always calls us in before he calls us out. And so this is part of a kind of a broader genre of what uh, some people refer to as Old Testament call narratives where God calls different men and women uh, into his work and and then empowers them and equips them to uh, the mission that he's got for them. So you see this, for instance, in uh, Joshua chapter 1 with Moses' successor. You'll see this in Judges 6 with Gideon. You'll see this in Samuel with both Hannah uh, as well as uh, Samuel himself. You'll see this in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2, Isaiah 6 and 40. You'll see this in Jeremiah chapter 1. There's a pattern. There are patterns to the way that God tends to call and work in people's lives that I think we can learn from as we seek to understand God's calling in our own lives. And so I want to look at some of those. Before we jump in uh, and and look specifically at this text, um, I want to talk about what we mean by calling, because different people have different definitions for what they would refer to as calling or or vocation. Uh, Frederick Buechner, who's an older writer, uh, has a great